We have been camping out, as Pastor Hill likes to say, in this passage. And uh, we're not going to be giving such detail all the way through the book of Genesis, but this passage is so crucial to the whole issue of marriage. And so, because we haven't preached on that theme for quite some time, we are spending extra time with these verses. Please follow along as I read from Genesis 2, beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took up, he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This now is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then Moses makes this comment, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Before we seek to glean from this passage once again, let us pray for the help of God. Most blessed and glorious God, we do thank you that what you made at the very beginning you made perfect. And although we have made a great mess of what you made, we do thank you that there is coming a day when you will restore your creation. And we do thank you also that through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that even now, in various ways, your original purpose is being restored in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray that you would use your word to that end this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. It was a wonderful marriage. It was filled with all the joys and hopes that the best of all marriages can have. He was delighted with her, and she was delighted in him. Like so many couples on their honeymoon, they felt comfortable with each other. They enjoyed each other's company. There was a deep attraction to one another, complete transparency with one another. But like too many marriages... What started out with great promise led to great frustration. In a short amount of time, barriers grew where closeness had been. Blame shifting and friction intensified. And quickly they grew distant from one another and from the Lord. You know the couple that I'm speaking about. His name was Adam and her name was Eve. How is it that marriages go from such promise to such frustration? But to a large extent, the answers are right here in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And here in Genesis 2, we have the original blueprint for marriage. And in Genesis 3, we have the sad account how trouble entered into this most promising marriage. And here in this chapter, we have, therefore, the first account of marriage. And we have the, the blueprint, the plan that God has for marriage. The first thing that we encounter in verse 18 is God's observation. It's not good that the man should be alone. This observation was then followed by God's resolve. I will therefore make him a helper comparable to him. And the word that is translated helper, it conveys the idea of somebody that assists another to reach complete fulfillment. And as his matching opposite, therefore, Eve would supply what was lacking in Adam. And the account of Adam's need for a counterpart is then followed by an account of God's provision, the provision of a woman, verses 21 to 23. And after God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, he took one of Adam's ribs, and from that rib, as you know, he made a woman. And the finishing touch of Moses' account of the creation of the woman 
is given at the end of verse 22, where we read that after the Lord had fashioned the rib into a woman, he brought her to the man. This was the first wedding. God himself walked her down the aisle to bring her to the groom. And Adam's response was an outburst of astonishment. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Well, this account of the creation of the first woman is then followed by Moses' inspired commentary in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this morning, it's my plan to continue to expound two practical implications that, draw, that come out of this passage. And these two implications are at the very top of the outlines that you have in your bulletins. Let me remind you that the first of these is that marriage is for loving companionship. This is the natural inference that we read at the beginning of verse 18, and the Lord God said it's not good that the man should be alone. He's not supposed to be a hermit. He's supposed to have a companion. That's what marriage provides. To relieve this aloneness, therefore, God saw that he was lonely. Therefore, Adam was given a partner that perfectly matched his need. And God's intention, therefore, in marriage is that there would be an emotional and spiritual union between the man and the woman that is the most intimate and the most endearing of all human relationships on earth. In other words, God's plan for marriage is that it's supposed to be the closest of all friendships. There is to be companionship. It was to relieve the problem of aloneness. And this emotional and spiritual bond doesn't take place overnight. It's a process that begins as two people get to know each other, as they spend time with one another, as they converse with one another. And the loving companionship, therefore, of marriage, it depends upon communication. And the second practical implication that we draw from this passage is that God's design for marriage is that the two would become one. In Genesis 2 and verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now it is true that the marriage act is the symbol and culmination of this oneness. But this one flesh union, it doesn't just consist in the marriage act. The essence of this union is the total giving of each partner to the other. Without this spiritual emotional union, the physical act loses its meaning. Marriage, therefore, is the total sharing of the total person with another person until death parts them. So we have these two related implications. Marriage is for loving companionship, and God's design for marriage is that the two would become one. And both of these implications rely upon communication. Wherever you find marital failure, you'll find somewhere in that failure a lack of real communication or a breakdown in some way of communication. And what we might call circuit jammers, they cause communication to break down. And in our outlines, we have listed four such circuit jammers. Undertalk, false talk, unloving talk, and one-way talk. And again, I want to especially express my indebtedness to Wayne Mack, his book, Your Family, God's Way. In our last sermon, we focused upon the first of these four things, undertalk, or we might call it small talk, and we're not talking about talking about the weather, that kind of small talk, but small talk in the sense there's not very much of it. A person just doesn't talk very much. And here's the tendency to keep everything bottled up inside, and this greatly undermines the loving companionship that God intends for marriage. Well, I won't go over all the things that we said in our last sermon, but that's the first thing, undertalk. And the second circuit jammer, and this is the one we come to now during this hour, is that it is false talk. And we're going to come, God willing, to unloving talk. We're not going to get to the last of these four. We want to consider just now for a while the second circuit jammer, false talk. And here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want to read verses 11 and 12. Paul is speaking about the things that the Spirit has revealed. 
Eye has not seen or ear heard the things that God has prepared for us, Paul says. But God has revealed them through his spirit, verse 10. And then he says, comparing the spirit's revelation to what man reveals of his own heart, he says in verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So what is he saying here? He is saying that the only way you know somebody's inside, their real self, is that they have to reveal themselves. They have to open themselves up in some way. They communicate. They talk. And in the same way that the Spirit opens up the truth to us, in the same way we reveal ourselves to one another. Deep unity in marriage, it can only take place when we are open and honest with one another. And if God has given the scriptures to us, he speaks words to us to tell us about himself. If he had given us the scriptures and if he has sent the Holy Spirit to help us understand the scriptures, if he didn't do that, we never would really be able to know God. We'd never be able to have a close relationship. If God didn't open up his heart to us by means of words that he speaks to us. And in a similar way, if a man and a woman are to get to know each other, they have to reveal themselves. They have to speak words, conveying what's inside their hearts. My wife may think she knows me, and I may think I know my wife by observation, but and to one degree or another, this does help. We observe some things, but we really can't know each other on a deeper level until we open our hearts up to one another. And in this connection, it's also important that when we profess to speak from the heart, that we do so honestly. And that's why we're talking about the opposite, false talk. It's not what my wife pretends to be, but what she truly thinks in her heart. This is what she really is. Now often when a pastor is giving marriage counseling, he will hear words such as these. I didn't know that you felt that way. Or... I didn't know what was going on that this annoyed you. Or I didn't know that such and such was so important to you. A pastor will hear those kinds of words. And a couple may have been married sometimes for several years. But increasingly they realize that something is missing in their relationship. And all too often they can't relate to each other. And increasingly they're at odds with one another. He gets ticked off at the least little thing. And she does the same. And they're both Christians. They know that this mutual irritability is a poor testimony to their children. So they finally swallow their pride. They approach the pastor. They want to find out what's wrong. They want to deal with the issue. As their pastor probes the situation, he asks the wife to describe what there is about the husband that annoys her. So she gulps and she begins to unload the kinds of things that have been bothering her for years. And when she's done, her husband says, Honey, Why didn't you tell me all those things before? I didn't know that this was what was bothering you. And then knowing that there are two sides to every every story, the pastor asked the husband to describe what has been annoying him. And then she says, is that what's been bothering you? I had no idea. Why didn't you talk with me about those things? Well, how did it get this way? That they didn't know some things about one another. Perhaps both husband and wife, they thought there were good reasons for not saying certain things that were on their minds. They didn't want to make a fuss, for instance. They didn't want to hurt the other person. It was just a little issue, they thought, so they didn't want to bring it up. And the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins, so we shouldn't be bringing up every little thing. But as more and more they cover up what they really feel and what they really think, the little things begin to pile up. And the pile begins to be big. Now turn with me please to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, primarily Paul is speaking about how church members are to relate to one another. And he says, beginning with verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry 
and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. As we go through the book of Genesis, we're going to discover that lying is a frequent sin even among believers. It's all the way through the book of Genesis. In chapter 12, fear moves Abraham to lie to Pharaoh about his relationship with his wife. Chapter 26, the same is true of Abraham's son Isaac. He lies to protect his own skin about his own wife with King Abimelech. Come to chapter 27, and greed motivates Jacob to deceive his father and steal his brother's birthright. In chapter 37, there's envy that prompts Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery and then to to deceive their father into thinking that a wild animal had torn him to pieces. Lying broke down all kinds of relationships, you see, and this was happening even among those that were among the people of God. Unconfessed lying, unconfessed falsehood, it hurts relationships. Jacob's deceptions led him to leave home. This was a tragic thing. He never got to see his mother and father again alive. And he broke down his relationship for years with his brother Esau. Falsehood in marriage likewise leads to a lack of trust. Dr. Mack relates a case in which a couple would discuss a matter. The wife would agree to the decision. And she and he would then go away thinking that, well, this has been worked out. She's agreed, but when he's not around, she would do exactly the opposite of what she'd agreed to. And as a result, he felt betrayed. He, he lost trust in her. He didn't feel that she was been truthful with him. Now, sometimes falsehood is manifested in very blatant ways. Your spouse gets upset over something that you've just said, and so you say, I didn't mean it the way you're taking it, when actually that's exactly the way you meant it. Or I was only kidding when you meant every word of it. Or I'm sorry I forgot to do what you asked me to do, and you're really not sorry, and you didn't actually forget to do what you were asked to do. You're just lying. And sometimes falsehood is not manifested so much in a blatant way like this, but by lack of transparency. We spoke of this a few moments ago. You make it seem that everything's okay, and even though your spouse senses something is bothering you, you slough it off, and you give her the idea or him the idea that everything's just fine when it's not. Or you play hide-and-seek with her, and you hope that what you're doing won't be discovered. R.C. Sproul, in his book on intimacy, intimacy and marriage, He relates this. I came home from the golf course one afternoon. Vesta, that's the name of his wife. Vesta asked me if I had a good time. I recounted the events of the day with delight. And then she asked the provocative question, how much money did you spend? That's why I never want to be a golfer. It's a lot of money. How much money did you spend? Well, I gave her a proper accounting of green fees, caddy fees, a couple new golf balls, and then added $5 for the lesson I got from the pro. Best to explain, we can't afford $5 for golf lessons. This is quite a few years back, by the way. And I meekly surrendered to her feelings and changed to the subject. In the weeks that followed, my golf game improved quite a bit. I kept on thinking, just two or three more lessons. And I'd really have this game together. So I went to the pro and I had three more lessons. Only this time I didn't tell Vesta about it and carefully instructed the pro not to send any bills to my house, but to settle the bill with me privately. He smiled in agreement, saying that he had to do this for a lot of guys. Well, unfortunately, the pro forgot to relay the message to the secretary. And arriving home one day, Vesta met me at the door with a knowing look on her face and a bill in her hand. I was dumbfounded. And then all I could do was stand there and laugh. And sternly she said, that's not funny. And I replied, I know that's why I'm laughing, because I didn't know what else to do, he says. And she asked, why did you deceive me? And then I gave her the myth of, I figured what you didn't know wouldn't hurt you. And she said, well, it does hurt me. And it hurts me even more that you felt like you had to hide it from me. And I told her that I hadn't particularly enjoyed the feeling that I had to hide it from her either. But she was violated by my subterfuge. 
And this experience was painful for both of us because I chose deception over truth. And so lack of transparency, playing this hide-and-seek game with one another, is one of the forms of falsehood that can do considerable damage to our marriages. And on the outlines that are in your bulletins, I've listed two other forms of falsehood. We haven't listed them all. I've gone over some of this business of lack of transparency and, and so forth and blatant lying. But one thing that we also want to mention is exaggeration. Now, like lack of honest disclosure, this form of falsehood, again, it's not so obvious as blatant lying. Exaggeration occurs, for example, when we blow things out of proportion. Sometimes we exaggerate about our spouse's behavior. We want to, we're getting a little uncomfortable discussion. And when we do this, when we exaggerate about her or his behavior, our spouse, we typically use words like always or never. You never want to do what I want to do. You're always late. You're never ready on time. Why is it that we can never have a discussion without you yelling at me? I always have to clean up after you. I never can count on you. You say you'll change, but you never do. You are never satisfied, no matter how hard I try. You'll never change. You get the point. It never comes up to the never category. There's usually some efforts that are made in these things, but there's this tendency to exaggerate to make the point. Sometimes we exaggerate about our own conduct. What do you mean? I help you all the time. Or why isn't it that I'm always the one who has to give in? Or in response to a concern that's been raised about our conduct, nothing could be further from the truth. So we exaggerate about our own conduct. And these words, the words such as always and never and nothing and all the time, these are like red flags that wave in our faces, so to speak. They warn us that maybe we're making a possible overstatement. And it's rarely true that somebody always commits a certain offense or never does a certain thing that's right. But it's no exaggeration to say that marital relationships are hurt by exaggerations. Exaggerations are often used when we are exasperated. We use them as a mechanism of self-defense. Nobody likes it when their faults are exaggerated or when the virtues of the person that is speaking to you, that person exaggerates their own virtues. We don't like that. And these attempts at overkill, they make it obvious that the speaker is departing from the truth. And you, when you resort, you see, to overkill... Your spouse loses confidence in you, and your words no longer ring true. And instead of solving relationship difficulties, exaggeration, therefore, makes everything worse. But then there's just one other form of false talk that we also listed in your bulletins, and it is misrepresentation. Now, perhaps there's no more common form of falsehood than when the facts about a person or event are rearranged in such a way as to convey a less than full picture, less than truthful picture. And by the way in which certain parts of the story are accentuated, by the way in which certain things are left out, or the way in which they are falsely connected, different elements of the story to one another, the account that's given is significantly distorted. And this is why we have the adage, there are always two sides to the story. Proverbs 18, 17, therefore, says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So you hear just one side of the story, and it seems pretty, pretty right. It's, boy, this guy's got a problem here. He's, his wife is pretty miserable to him, and boy, I'm glad I'm not married to her. You're only hearing one side of the story, though. The neighbor comes, therefore, or maybe she shows up and examines him. One of the comic strips, Hagar the Horrible, Hagar went to his doctor for a physical exam. And after examining, the doctor said, you're fat and flabby. And for a man your age, I'm amazed at the shape that you're in. So he goes home, and his wife asks what the doctor said. So Hagar deceitfully says, for a man my age, he was amazed at what shape I'm in. And so he misrepresented, you see, 
he used the exact words in some way of, of what the doctrine said, but he misrepresented these words by taking them out of context, and he admitted what was unmistakably negative, and with his upbeat tone, he turned the doctrine's negative into a false positive. Well, like Hagar, many of our, we, we tend to misrepresent the facts of ourselves in order to curry favor, or maybe to win sympathy, or maybe to save face in a situation. We want to escape criticism, perhaps, for what we, a decision that we made. And initially, we, we, we could get away with it sometimes. But eventually, the truth tends to come out about these stories that we tell. And our misrepresentations then damage the trust level between us. Our relationships, even with others outside of marriage, we can, we can also hurt those relationships. And if you resort to misrepresentations about yourself or what you've just done with your spouse, especially your deceptive tendencies will be discovered and you no longer will be trusted. And likewise, when you twist what your spouse has done and you cast a lurid light on what has happened, you destroy any confidence that your spouse has that you're, being, you're treating her, you're treating him fairly. And people fear that they're going to be misrepresented they tend to clam up. They avoid discussing sensitive issues. They, they're, they're afraid of being misquoted, misjudged. So they kind of rein in, you see. They cover themselves up. And when your spouse fears that you're going to do this to him or her, your spouse will be careful to speak sparingly or on a superficial level. And this undermines the deep unity in marriage that otherwise might exist. So some of the most basic questions that we ought to ask ourselves before we speak are these. Is what I'm about to say true? And am I saying it in a true way? Do I have all the facts? Am I painting a balanced and true picture of what really happened? And of course there are other questions that we need to ask as we speak. Things like, is it going to be profitable, what I'm saying here? Is it the proper time to say it? Is my attitude right as I say it? But the most basic of all questions is this. Is what I'm about to say true? Well, this is the second major way in which we undermine good communication. We've spoken about under-talk, and we've just spoken about false talk. But now I want to come to a third circuit jammer of good communication. And it is what we would call unloving talk. Now at the outset, let me make it very plain that the completely opposite of unloving talk is not sweet syrupy talk. Those aren't the exact opposites of one another. True love doesn't mean that we'll never have disagreements. But we must be careful to remember that disagreements are one thing and being disagreeable is another thing. You get the difference. Disagreements, they simply confirm the fact that both of us are two different people. God didn't make Adam and Eve exactly alike. They, they complemented one another. They had different outlooks, therefore, naturally about certain matters. God gave Adam a woman that complemented him. And completed it. So don't despair if your spouse seems to think differently than you about certain issues. It's okay if you disagree as long as you do it in an agreeable manner. Now genuine change, let's remember, it doesn't come about by threats and ultimatums. But a good quarrel that's waged openly and fairly and lovingly is the best way sometimes to get change to take place. And nothing is more necessary, therefore, for, for, this, for a good outcome than love to be at work as you have these discussions, one with the other. Quarreling tends to lead us up a blind alley, especially when you're only motivated by desire to win. If you want to win, both of you are going to lose. If that's your goal, just to win the argument, love isn't there. You're just concerned about winning. You're, you're not motivated by love. And you can't remake your spouse into something that he or she isn't. And so get the idea out of your head that a good quarrel with your spouse has a winner and a loser, and you better be sure to be the winner. That's going to way that's going to work out. 
Well, with Christian love, when it rules in our hearts and in our tongues, both of us are winners. And on the other hand, every kind of unloving speech short-circuits good communication. And here I want to give you four examples of this kind of unloving talk that I have in mind. The first example is what we would call gunpowder speech. Proverbs 18.6 says, As fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. Now when some people shoot off their mouths, it's all you could do to keep from firing back. It's provocative. And you want to strike back verbally, if not physically. And their explosive speech, it's gunpowder speech as we call it, it invites a beating, as the book of, that text I just quoted. It calls for blows, whether physical or verbal. Wayne Mackey relates this incident. He says, on one occasion I complimented a counselee on the good job she did in filling out her personal data inventory form. She responded, well, wasn't that what everybody's supposed to do? Pow, Lord, give me grace, he prays. I already ignored her provocative response and continued to read her form. Her answers indicated that she read her Bible and prayed often. I commented on that and added, that's great. To which she replied, well, isn't that what every Christian is supposed to do? Pow, another flash of hostility. Then I found out that she memorized a lot of scripture. I praised her for that and she retorted, well, isn't every Christian supposed to memorize scripture? It didn't matter what I said, she wanted to do battle. And even words of commendation set her off. Well, this woman's mouth was inviting a beating. I could understand why she didn't have any friends, why she felt lonely and alienated from people, and why she had problems with the members of her family. Her gunpowder speech provoked an escalated conflict, and it led to defeat in her life. Now, sometimes gunpowder speech its manifested not so much with caustic words, but the hot, angry tone with which you express those words. And some people, they joke about the fact that they have a short fuse, or they say defensively, well, I get angry quickly, but I get over it real quick. Or after they've engaged in a fantastic display of fireworks, they excuse themselves, they say, well, I believe it's speaking my mind, but I don't really mean anything by it. And you can ask anyone, I don't hold grudges, they say. But living with somebody that has a short fuse is not very pleasant. As Dr. Mack puts it, who enjoys living at the foot of an active volcano? Who enjoys having hot lava poured over him on a regular basis? At first it may be rather exciting, but after a while it becomes somewhat frightening. Who enjoys living on top of a time bomb that goes off at frequent intervals? Who wants to be yelled at and screamed at? Who delights in living with a person who lacks control over his violent temper? Well, there's a lot that could be said more about gunpowder speech. Years ago, I preached a whole series of sermons on anger and how we deal with anger. But I want to just stress this before we move on. If you struggle with this, let me simply say, let me simply urge you to consider how this is contrary to love. Love seeks the good of the person that's loved. Doesn't hurt that person with angry tirades. And there's a kind of righteous anger, yes, that is a manifestation of a right kind of love, love for the honor and glory of God. It's driven by love for God. There's also a kind of anger that's driven by love for people that are being mistreated by others. On one occasion, Jesus, you remember, entered a synagogue and he spotted a man with a withered hand. But the religious leaders, they were there and they hated Jesus. And they were concerned about making sure that their Sabbath rules that they had added to the Bible, they they were being kept. And they were more concerned with that than this man being healed. And so we read in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus had looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of our hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man was healed. He wasn't so much angry because they were abusive towards him. It was the hardness of their hearts toward this man that was in misery. Well, Jesus' anger was motivated, therefore, by love. But usually our anger is motivated by selfish concerns. 
And when this is so, our words, instead of being the vehicle of love, they hurt and wound the ones that are inflicted by them. Proverbs 12 and verse 18 refers to the words that are like piercings of a sword. They pierce deeply. They hurt. Proverbs 16, 27, ungodly man digs up evil. And it is on his lips like a burning fire. He goes around looking for things to spread around and say about other people. And it's like burning fire. Angry words can also be likened to sharp arrows or a large sledgehammer. They pierce the heart of the person against whom they're, they're, they're dislodged. And they're heavy blows that bring ruin and devastation and sometimes even death. And in many marriages, hasty, violent, vindictive, bitter, cutting words, they're hurled at the one that you ought to be loving more than any other person on the earth. And that person, instead of being feeling like they're loved, they're battered and beaten and hopeless. Now, many modern psychologists, they counsel angry clients to just get it out of their system. They say, well, whatever you feel like saying, just get it off your chest. If there's something inside, just yell it out, scream at that person across the table, systematically unlace him or her, knock the stuffing out of that person. If you need to, take your anger against your spouse and take it out on a pillow and hit it until the feathers fly. Just get it all out of your system. That's the way to deal with it. Well, all this kind of counsel, it's as if the counselor's only concerned about you feeling good in your mystery anger totally unconcerned about what it does to that person that hears these angry words, how it hurts, how it cuts, how it pierces, how it burns. And this is utterly contrary to biblical love. So my counsel to those of you who have a hair-trigger temper is not just let it rip. My counsel is you need to repent. And the second great commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And nobody's closer as a neighbor than your spouse. And would you like to be wounded? Would you like to be hurt? Would you like to be crushed? Would you like to be destroyed? And therefore, you need to repent of this sinful anger. You need to confess verbally your sins, not only to God, but to that person that you hurt. You need to confess specifically to that person your lack of love. You need to say, please forgive me for my unloving words. Well, the first manifestation, therefore, of this kind of unloving speech is gunpowder speech. But now let me mention a second manifestation of this, and it is what we would call cancellation speech. Cancellation speech, it takes place when something is said in one breath and then taken back, and then in other words, canceled in the next breath. For example, you say to your wife, that was really a good meal. Why don't you cook more often? So what does she hear? What does she get out of those two statements? She gets out of it, well, most of the time I don't make very good meals. That's the way he feels. That's, that's what she takes out of it. It's canceled, you see. Or you say to your son, well, I'm glad to see that you've got A's in English and history. But why did you get those two B's and those two C's on the other subjects? So the commendation is canceled. Or you say to your husband, I really appreciate the way you mow the yard and trim the bushes this time. I just wish you would do it more often. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11 says this. Encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. And Paul practiced what he preached. Now it's true that he gave exhortations. He pointed out areas of sin, areas that need to be corrected in the churches that he wrote to. He did this. But he also gave them words of encouragement. And when he did give them these words of encouragement, he didn't, just, he didn't cancel what he just said. At the beginning of this same letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. But he didn't cancel those words right away by then adding this. But you've got a long ways to go in faith, hope, and love. Just remember that too. He didn't do that. He didn't say, I thank God for the grace of faith, love, and hope in you. But there's some, some of you that are lazy. 
Got to get to that right now. Well, he gets to it later. But he doesn't cancel, you see, his encouraging words at that moment. He lets them sink in as pure words of encouragement. Well, cancellation speech should often manifest the kind of pride that is intent on exalting self and keeping others in their place. And it's often pride that inhibits us from simply expressing appreciation for somebody's ministry or somebody's uh, what they've done without some kind of a disclaimer, some kind of a cancellation. It prompts us to commend somebody for an insight that they just expressed, that his pride prompts us this. But then right away to, 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 to say that we discovered that truth a few months ago, by the way, and we also discovered some other things that you didn't notice. It prompts you to see the husband to say to his wife about her, the decorating project. Honey, I really like the curtains that you picked out. But there's some pictures that would really look good next to those, those curtains. It would make it look even better. So what is she hearing? She's hearing, you don't really like the way I've decorated this room, do you? That's what she gets out of that, because it's all canceled. It keeps the husband, you see, from simply comp- comp- complimenting his wife for her decorating skills, about immediately implying that he's, he's, he's better at it, and he, can, he, he, he has a suggestion or two to improve on what she's just done. But then let me come to a third manifestation of unloving talk, and it is contentious speech. Proverbs 10, verse 12, we read, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Contentiousness is a kind of hatred. It's the opposite of the kind of love that covers the defects of character in others with a blanket of love, always making excuses for whatever blemishes it sees. Hatred is the opposite of that kind of love that covers sin. And the man that can't discuss anything with others without getting into an argument, he's also full of pride. He imagines his views are always better. Proverbs 28, 25, He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Proverbs 13.10, this is emphasized a lot. Pride stirs up strife. By pride comes nothing but strife. But what the well-advised is wisdom. And this kind of speech, it can, it, it can create a tremendous strain on the household. It's exceedingly difficult to live with a contentious person that always wants to argue about everything. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Proverbs 27 and verse 15 says, Now, proud people, they stubbornly hold to their opinions no matter what evidence is presented to the contrary. They just have to keep arguing about it. Proverbs 29.9, if a wise man contends with a foolish man, whether he rage or laugh, there is no rest. Charles Bridges, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Proverbs, he says, if a wise man contends with the wise, he can make himself understood. And there's some hope of bringing the debate to a good issue. But to contend with a fool, there is no rest. No peace or quiet. It will go on without end. He will neither listen to reason nor yield to argument. Remember Nabal. Nabal was the cantankerous husband of Abigail. And he was terribly insulting to David and his men. And you remember how Nabal's servants came to Abigail, his wife, and said, no and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master, for he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. He's the kind of man we're talking about here, you see. Can't talk without being argumentative and contentious about it. Well, there are proud women as well as proud men. And one manifestation of this tendency is what we might call the final word speech. The kind of speech that always has to have the last word. And I read of one woman the shot thought she knew exactly what was right for her husband and daughter. She considered herself the family oracle. She knew the topics that her daughter should write about on her term paper. She knew what her daughter should do with her life. She knew where her husband should conduct his business. She knew what was wrong in the church and in the world and what ought to be done about it. She knew why her husband and daughter had problems listening and relating to her. They were worldly, unspiritual, lacking godliness, or they would see her virtues and, 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 and chime in with her. And in reality, you see, they were tired of being treated like morons by somebody that did all their thinking for them. 
Her final word style of communicating, it created an immense barrier between her and her family. And so, this is another manifestation of unloving speech, what we call cancellation speech, or what we call contentious speech. But then finally, there's a fourth manifestation of unloving talk, and it's just what we would call negative speech. There's some people that never seem to have a good word about others or to others. They can seldom bring themselves to affirm any kind of positive virtue in another person. And they rarely acknowledge the good things that are happening in the world, that are happening in the church, or that are happening in their family. They're experts at spying out faults in other people. This kind of a person is the epitome of the person that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount that's eager to inspect specks in other people's eyes, but never considers the planks in his own eye. Matthew 7, 3. And likewise, such persons, they never have a good word to say about government officials. They can never have a good word, good word to say about the pastors, about other leaders, anybody. It's always negative. And the doom and gloom that pours out of their mouths, it fosters a depressing atmosphere in a family. It weighs everybody down. They're like the complaining Israelites. You remember Moses couldn't do anything right. They never had a good word for Moses. And in their unbelief, they're so determined to look on the dark side of everything. You remember how when they came back, the, the 12 spies, the two of them brought a, a glowing report. And these doom and gloom people, this year brought us out here to kill us. Only they could see the dark side, only could see the, the horrible side to everything. And likewise, there are those who are so determined to look on the dark side of everything that nothing can change their minds. I'm a night owl, so I tend to watch some of the late-night news broadcasts. If I miss it earlier, Shannon Bream comes on later on at night. And she's a vibrant Christian. She sprinkles her newscasts very frequently with Bible verses, with interviews of pastors and interviews with Christians concerning various matters. And invariably, a significant portion of her hour-long broadcast is on positive news because we hear such depressing news hour after hour, if you listen to the news. She's a wonderful example, you see, of the opposite of what I'm talking about. And I commend her to you as an example of the opposite. Well, sometimes the negativity of the opposite kind of a person is so bad that such ones, they say, exceedingly hurtful and damaging things in their attempts to manipulate and control others. I read about one 29-year-old lady who came for counseling with some serious personal and family problems. And she had tried to commit suicide on different occasions. And initially her presentation was her own marriage and its difficulties. But it soon became evident that her difficulties went way deeper and went back further than her relationship with her husband. And as information was gathered, it was discovered that her mother had manipulated and punished her by saying things like this, you'll be the death of me yet. I wish you had never been born. I never wanted you anyway. You're just no good. And when she was a little girl, these words, they would ring in her ears, and she crept in bed. Fear and hurt and shame kept her awake because she thought her mother might die during the night, and it would all be her fault. And she'd lie awake listening to her mother's breathing. And finally she reached the point where she just wished her mother would die. And she thought that would end her agony. I would lie in bed and picture my mother stretched out in a coffin. Now imagine the impact that that had on that girl growing up. And how she would then be later on as she was married to a man. And interacted with other people. And... Deeply negative speech to our children especially can ruin them. It can hurt them. And we must stay away from it. It is absolutely contrary to loving speech. Well, these are just some of the manifestations of unloving talk. Gunpowder speech, cancellation speech, contentious speech, and negative speech. And all of this needs to be replaced. And I want to close with this. It needs to be placed, replaced with the opposite. 
The opposite is gospel-flavored speech. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's the negative. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And then a few, few verses later, Walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given us an example, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Proverbs 16 and verse 21 says, The wise in heart will be called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. You don't persuade but negative speech. You do so with sweetness of speech, it says. Verse 24, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the bones. I want to just ask you, how do you speak to your children? How do you speak to your husband, to your wife? Speaking in a harsh or an insulting way, it tends to reap the same. Back. You, you get the harshest back. It provokes it. But Proverbs 15, 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And how much better is it, therefore, to have the sweetness of speech and the pleasantness of words that the book of Proverbs speaks about? Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace. Gracious speech, what is it? It's speech that is gospel-flavored. And gracious speech, it plants seeds, you see, in the hearts of your children. And it reaps gracious responses. When you were born again, what kind of speech from God transformed you? It was the gospel that transformed you. It wasn't the law. Yes, we need to hear the law. But the thing that really changed your heart was God's grace to you sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let the gospel transform your speech. And let it transform those that you love by the way you speak to them. And may God be pleased to use it to transform others as well. As we sang a little bit ago, may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self abasing, this is victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to be the perfect communicator. He was the word. He revealed and does reveal your heart. And we pray that you would help us to learn from the way in which he spoke to others, the way in which he dealt with others, even difficult people. And we pray that whatever circumstances we are found in as individuals, whether we are in difficult marriages, whether we have difficult children, a difficult job, whatever the situation, we plead with you, O Lord, that you would be working our hearts, teaching us to speak in a loving way, especially with those that are a life-term, a lifeline, life companion, the one that should be our best friend. Oh, help us, Lord, to be loving and gracious in the way we speak to one another. And may that sweet atmosphere be reflected throughout the household so that our children pick it up, so that they too have speech that is seasoned with grace. Visit us, visit us we do pray, with your grace and with your love and with your, your mercy. We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.